Welcome back, friends! Today we wrap up the Historical Oddities series with two weird pieces of history. First, we discuss what an outlaw shot dead well over a century ago has to do with an amusement park and a campy sci-fi series from the 70s. Then we hop across the pond, and back again, to find out just what a London bridge is doing in a desert some 5,000 miles from the Thames. Before we start, I want to quickly mention that a very kind listener brought to my attention that the link to the History Cash podcast email was not populating correctly on the website. So if you tried emailing me through the link on my website at historycashpodcast.podbean.com, it's possible that I never actually got your email. Apparently, the email was populating as History Cash Podcasts instead of podcast. I have since fixed this and shoot away all those pesky podcasts. I sincerely apologize if my technological buffoonery has caused any confusion. Huge thank you to Shannon for pointing that out to me. The correct email is historycashpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Shannon. Now for some weird history. I'm pretty excited to share these stories with you, so let's skip over the intro today and jump right into some history. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. In the 1970s, there was a TV show called The Six Million Dollar Man. It was a sci-fi series that ran for five seasons. Lee Majors starred as a crime-fighting former astronaut whose limbs were replaced with nuclear-powered bionic limbs and implants after a NASA flight test went horribly wrong. In 1976, a few weeks before Christmas, its film crew was filming on location at New Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California. They were filming a scene inside the funhouse for an episode called Carnival of Spies. Naturally, the bionic crime-fighting astronaut was fighting a sinister German spy. Among the props inside the funhouse was a leathery dummy. It had been part of the funhouse's decor for four years. It was spray-painted with glow-in-the-dark orange paint and was hanging from a noose. According to an article from NPR, the crew decided that this prop needed to come down for the scene. When the crew grabbed hold of the dummy, they heard a snap. They had accidentally ripped the arm off when they were bringing it down. When examining the extent of the damage, they noticed something odd, then interesting, then horrifying. The dummy had not been made of plastic and wax. It was bone, flesh, and decayed sinew. This wasn't a carnival ride dummy. It was a dead body. Production stopped, and the police were called. After the body was examined by both a coroner and a forensic anthropologist, it was confirmed that it was indeed human. But who was it? The anthropologist and the coroner found some interesting clues. Inside the body's mouth, they found ticket stubs to a wax museum, as well as a corroded penny, dated to 1924. They also found gunshot wounds and bullets from the turn of the century. 
There was a scar on the wrist and clear evidence of tuberculosis in the lungs. It was obvious that this person had been dead for a long time. The body had shriveled down to a height of 5 foot 3, had incurred some serious wear and tear, and weighed in at a meager 50 pounds, or about 23 kilos. It was missing fingers, toes, most of both ears, and the majority of its hair. It was eventually confirmed that this was the body of a man named Elmer McCurdy. The amusement park had no idea that they had accidentally bought a human corpse. They thought they had purchased a fun, albeit strange, prop to give their patrons a good scare. So who was Elmer McCurdy, and why was his corpse hanging from the rafters of a funhouse in California? McCurdy was an outlaw, but he hadn't been a very good one. He was born in Maine in 1880. His childhood had been a turbulent one. Elmer never knew who his father was. His mother was only 17 when she had him. In his teens, Elmer was rebellious, and he began to drink heavily and he would continue to do so for the rest of his life. Just about everyone important to him died when he was young. He worked several jobs, but couldn't keep any of them because of his alcoholism. He worked in lead mines, developed tuberculosis at one point, and not sure what else to do, decided to join the army at age 27. While enlisted, McCurdy was a machine gun operator and was given some minimal training with nitroglycerin. This was most likely for demolition purposes. In 1910, he was honorably discharged, and it wasn't long after this that McCurdy took up residence in Oklahoma, where he decided to use his newfound skills for a life of crime. Specifically, robbing banks and, like a proper frontier outlaw, trains. None of his heists seemed to be very successful. Since he'd had some training with nitroglycerin in the army, it was his job to blow up safes. Problem was, Elmer wasn't great at determining just how much nitroglycerin to use for these heists, and he kept blowing up all the money in the safes, and accidentally melting all of the coins. Once though, he and his cohorts were able to make a getaway with $450 worth of melted silver. That's a little over 12 grand today. At one point, he was arrested for public intoxication, and the authorities found all sorts of suspicious implements on him, including empty money sacks and nitroglycerin. Somehow, he was released after lying and saying that all of it was intended for a foot-operated machine gun he and his friends were inventing. In 1911, he and his gang of outlaws decided they were going to do one big heist one that would get them upwards of $400,000. That's the equivalent of almost $11 million today. The money was being moved by train, and McCurdy and his friends by this point were no strangers to train robberies. And they did manage to rob the train they hijacked. But when they made it to the train safe, they were a bit perturbed to discover they had accidentally robbed the wrong train. Instead of the $400,000 prize, they made out with $46 and two jugs of whiskey. To make matters worse, a $2,000 bounty had been placed on McCurdy. That was a nice chunk of change. After they escaped the crime scene, he and his crew split up and fled into the hills. 
but McCurdy didn't cover his tracks well enough to throw the three sheriffs or the pack of bloodhounds on his trail. On October 7th, 1911, they tracked him to a hayshed where he had spent the night. McCurdy knew he was caught when the sheriffs and the dogs showed up, but he wasn't going to go down without a fight. Unfortunately for him, his shooting skills were on par with his explosive skills. He was about as good at shooting as your average stormtrooper. A shootout ensued, and when the smoke cleared, McCurdy was dead, riddled with bullet holes, and laying in a bloody heap next to his whiskey. And that is where history would have left him and his story if it weren't for what happened next. McCurdy's body was sent to mortician Joseph L. Johnson in Pawhuska, Oklahoma. Knowing it might be some time before someone came to claim his body, Johnson used a fortified arsenic-based embalming fluid, effectively mummifying him. This would help keep McCurdy as fresh as possible until someone came to give him a proper burial. But no one did. Sadly, McCurdy's family members were either all dead or estranged by the time of his death. This meant that Johnson wasn't going to make back the money he had spent preparing McCurdy's corpse. Determined to make up for the lost profits, the mortician propped McCurdy's body up with a rifle in the corner of the funeral home and charged people five cents a pop to come and look at him. Johnson labeled McCurdy as the bandit who wouldn't give up. Thus began McCurdy's 66-year-long career as a sideshow. Ironically, he would make more money as a corpse than he ever had as an outlaw. Despite his profession, Johnson seemed to have little respect for the body he had prepared. Johnson had visitors insert their coins right into McCurdy's mouth. Think about that the next time you're at a gumball machine. At least once, Johnson's children put McCurdy on roller skates and rolled him around their house. Apparently, McCurdy drew quite the crowd, and when word traveled about Johnson's attraction, carnival promoters from all over the country came sniffing. They made offers for Johnson's embalmed bandit, wanting to take him on tour, but Johnson refused them all. Four years later, in 1915, two men claiming they were McCurdy's brothers finally came to claim his body and give him a proper burial in the family plot. Johnson had no choice but to hand over his embalmed bandit to his family. Only these men were not his family. They were two carnival promoters, Charles and James Patterson, who impersonated McCurdy's brothers so they could con their way into stealing his body and showing it to crowds for money. Their lie worked, and they absconded with the bandit who wouldn't give up, setting him up as a sideshow in Texas. McCurdy changed hands quite a few times over the next several decades. He headlined in carnival circuits and was known by many names over the years. The Embalmed Bandit, the famous Oklahoma Outlaw, the Mystery Man of Many Aliases, the Outlaw Who Would Never Be Captured Alive, the 1,000-Year-Old Man. He was even placed next to the exhibit of Billy the Kid for a time. In 1922, he was sold to the Traveling Museum of Crime, he made his way to an amusement park near Mount Rushmore. But as the popularity of sideshow fads began to wane, McCurdy became less and less lucrative. 
He was placed in an open casket in a wax museum with a sign that read, Dead Dope Fiend, to deter kids from using marijuana. He even made his way to the big screen, appearing as a prop in the movie She Freak in 1967. Eventually, he made it to the Fun House in Long Beach where he was coated in orange glow-in-the-dark paint and hanged from a noose to scare people. Each time he changed hands, a little bit of his history was forgotten. Soon, Elmer McCurdy was no longer an outlaw. He was no longer even Elmer McCurdy. Everyone forgot he was even a human being. At some point, it just became assumed that he was a fake. His corpse was greatly damaged over the years through all the changing of hands, but Mortician Johnson's arsenic embalming brew held the test of time. And when an unsuspecting film crew accidentally ripped his arm off in 1976, he became a human again. If it hadn't been for this campy sci-fi show about a bionic crime-fighting astronaut, the outlaw Elmer McCurdy would have been forgotten cast out wherever Hollywood props go to die. After his identity was discovered, again, no one came to claim him. Even so, in 1977, 66 years after he had taken his last breath in a hayshed, Elmer McCurdy was finally laid to rest with a proper burial in Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Six feet of concrete was poured over his body to ensure that he would never be disturbed again. 300 people showed up to his funeral. And there's something beautiful about that. When he died in 1911, no one came to claim him. His loved ones were either estranged or dead themselves. His life was troubled, his death even more so. And now he was finally allowed to rest in peace instead of in a sideshow next to two-headed chickens and sugar-crazed screaming kids. You can visit him today if you'd like to and pay your respects at the grave of the bandit who wouldn't give up. He wasn't a good outlaw, but he did make history, even if it was by accident. If you drive through the Arizona desert on Highway 93, or 40 once you leave the mountains of Flagstaff, and you head down to where the landscape opens up and the deep red desert sunsets cut across a sky that does things with colors so beautiful it will make you cry unless you're completely dead inside, you'll begin to see signs for something rather curious. Here's a hint. you'll start seeing signs for the London Bridge in Arizona. And they are real. The London Bridge really is in Arizona. Well, one London Bridge. There have been many bridges spanning over the River Thames within the last couple thousand years. The first probably being erected when London was still the Roman city of Londinium. The first few London bridges were made of wood, and unfortunately, nothing remains of those. In 1176, construction began for the London Bridge of Nursery Rhyme fame. It was a huge project and took 33 years to complete. 
According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, it was the first great stone arch bridge built in Britain. It had a whopping 19 stone arches, with somewhere around 900 feet, or 270 meters long, and around 24 feet, or 7 meters, across. As a result of riverbed obstructions encountered during its painstaking construction, the span of the arches varied from 15 to 34 feet, or 5 to 10 meters. Apparently, the tide would rage through the narrower archways, and for fun, Londoners of old would get into small boats and shoot through the arches when the water was at its peak. They called it shooting the bridge. It was like an 800-year-old version of Splash Mountain, only dirty and a lot more dangerous. And I say dirty because this particular London bridge was much more than a bridge. By the time the Tudors were in charge, around 200 buildings had been built on top of it. There were merchants with shops lining both sides of the walkway, wares for sale, a chapel, residential sites built over the shops, a drawbridge so large ships could pass through, a latrine that let you drop your business directly down into the river, and in the 1580s, under Queen Elizabeth I, water mills were added, which contributed to the loud, crowded, bustling ecosystem that was the London Bridge. It was such a busy roadway that some people preferred to pay to take a ferry across the river instead of taking the bridge, which, as you can imagine, could take quite some time to cross. Perhaps one of the more memorable sights you'd see on the bridge, at least until around the 1660s, were severed heads. In 1598, Paul Hensner, a German lawyer who published an account of his travels to Elizabethan England, wrote about the bridge, saying, quote, the whole is covered on each side, with houses so disposed as to have the appearance of a continued street, not at all of a bridge. Upon this is built a tower on whose top the heads of such as have been executed for high treason are placed on iron spikes. We counted above thirty." Unquote. You can still get a copy of Henser's book today, by the way. Well, one that's been translated and republished a few times over. It probably won't surprise you that this crowded bridge overstuffed with people and wooden buildings was a bit of a fire hazard. Several fires devastated this bridge over the centuries. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, one of these that occurred only a few years after the bridge's completion killed as many as 3,000 people. Ice was also a problem. In the year 1282, five of its arches collapsed under the pressure of crushing winter ice. This bridge was damaged and repaired many times, and as the centuries moved on, the buildings were removed and the roadway widened to the span of 46 feet, or 14 meters, which helped a bit with the congestion. The two central arches of the bridge were replaced by one great arch. The center pier was also removed. These structural changes weakened the bridge and led to serious erosion, making the bridge a constant, expensive nightmare to maintain. Finally, it was time to say goodbye to the old London Bridge and its 622 years of history. In 1831, a new London Bridge was constructed, just upstream from the old one. King William IV and Queen Adelaide even showed up for its opening. It was designed by Scottish architect John Rennie and featured five stone arches. 
The consensus seemed to be that this one was a bit dull by comparison to the old London Bridge, and it was destined to be much more short-lived. As foot and carriage traffic turned with the century to cars and buses, the new old London Bridge started to slowly sink into the Thames under the pressure of modern traffic demands. The London Bridge was falling down. In 1962, it was decided that upkeep was more expensive and impractical than just building a new new London Bridge. So it was time for the new old London Bridge to come down just like the old old London Bridge. But it seemed a waste to throw this 130,000 tons of granite out. After all, it had been a part of London's history. In World War II, it even survived strafing during the London Blitz, and the bullet marks were still there. Battle scars of a not-too-distant past. It was City Councilor Ivan Luckin that persuaded his colleagues to try and auction off the bridge. But who in their right mind would buy it? They turned their sights to the U.S. because the U.S. had something that could help them solve their bridge dilemma. That something was a high concentration of eccentric rich people who liked buying weird things. Luckin advertised the bridge as the heir to 2,000 years of history. This was technically true, though somewhat misleading since the bridge was under 140 years old. But it was the successor to the previous and longer-lasting famous London Bridge of times past. The City of London cast its net, and it didn't take too long for an eccentric millionaire fish to bite. His name was Robert McCullough. He had made his millions off of oil, motors, and chainsaws. He once told a reporter that he owed his success to booze and broads. So if you're getting the idea that he was kind of a douche, you're probably right. The bridge appealed to him because he had sunk quite a bit of money into thousands of acres of land in the Arizona desert next to Lake Havasu, a lake that was formed in 1938 with the construction of Parker Dam on the Colorado River. And it's huge. Lake Havasu spans around 35 miles of the Colorado River. With his newly acquired acreage, McCullough established Lake Havasu City, but he was having a hard time attracting tourists and residents. This was partly because the location was remote, and partly because the heat in the summer months is severe. According to U.S. climate data, for four months out of the year, the average weather in Lake Havasu City is over 100 degrees, with the average high in July being 109. That's about 43 degrees Celsius. Once on June 29, 1994, according to the LA Times, the temperature reached a scorching 128 degrees. That's a little over 53 degrees Celsius. That's insane. All you can do when it's that hot is just try not to die. McCullough was hoping that bringing a piece of London's history to Lake Havasu City would entice more people to make their way there, despite its remote location and the fact that you can fry an egg on a sidewalk there. Negotiations began with the City of London. Dismantling the bridge was going to cost the city 1.2 million US dollars, so McCullough offered the city twice that, plus an additional $60,000 to sweeten the deal. He wanted to give an extra $1,000 for every birthday he'd celebrated by the time the bridge was reopened in Arizona. 
London agreed, and in 1968, McCullough officially bought the London Bridge. Well, a London Bridge, for $2,460,000. That's a bit over $18.5 million in today's US dollars. But the expenses didn't end with the purchase of the bridge. The 10,276 tons of exterior granite blocks were dismantled piece by piece and shipped through the Panama Canal to Long Beach, California. From there, a huge convoy of trucks carried it piecemeal to its new home in Lake Havasu City. Reassembling it took three years. The inside of the bridge today consists of hollow steel framework, and it's faced with the original 10,000 tons of London Bridge granite. This once 130,000-ton bridge now weighs in at around 30,000 tons. The bridge was reconstructed with one end on a peninsula and the other on the mainland. Then a mile-long channel was carved out and filled with water, turning the peninsula into an island. The shipping and reconstruction of the London Bridge took an additional $7 million. That's over $53 million in today's US dollars. That was seven times the amount McCullough had spent buying the land surrounding it. That brings the total cost for everything, including the original price of the bridge, the shipping and handling, and reconstruction, to $9,460,000. That's almost $72 million today. When the bridge was finally finished on October 10, 1971, McCullough threw a huge party that cost more than any of our student loan debt. There were skydivers, fireworks, hot air balloons, music, and a lot of food. He served lobster and roast beef because that had been the same meal King William IV had served at the bridge's original inception in 1831. McCullough told the Chicago Tribune that, quote, I needed the bridge, but even if I didn't, I might have bought it anyway. Apparently, there was some confusion with people thinking McCullough had bought the original London Bridge of nursery rhyme fame. Others confused it with the iconic Tower Bridge of London. But even so, the bridge did bring in tourists, and today it is the second most visited attraction in Arizona, second only to the Grand Canyon. Lake Havasu City is now nearing 55,000 residents. It's home to beautiful sunsets, great fishing spots, a state park, hiking trails, interesting desert wildlife, and the world's most expensive souvenir. That brings our series on historical oddities to an end. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed hearing about some of the weirder parts of history. I'll be back again in three weeks with some more history better than fiction. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. You can join the ranks of some of the best patrons in existence at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme song from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay awesome, friends. And until we meet again, go make some history.